Welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien and I'm a health psychologist in training. Whether you're a health professional who wants psychology training or whether you're just looking to get support, you can get in touch through my website, headfirst.ie or through Instagram at headfirstzero. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Welcome back to the Head First podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien. I am your host, and I am delighted to have Dr. Jake Lenarden on today to speak about binge eating and all of the research. So firstly, Jake, I really appreciate your time. I know I said beforehand that I've been badgering you for quite a while to, to get on here. So firstly, I appreciate your time and thank you for coming on. Um, for anyone who doesn't know you, and first of all, I think if anyone who's listening to this and wants to know about binge eating, they probably should know about you. Um, but for those of you may, um, who may not have, have come across you before, um, it might be great to get an introduction as to kind of who you are and what you do. So I'll hand over to you to, to let you do that, if that's okay. Cool. So I just wanted to say, Joe, first off, again, thank you for the invitation, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to feature on your, your growing podcast, which I can, I've seen from the outer from Instagram, and it's, it's, it's really nice to be featured on this. Um, so, so basically, my short story is that I'm a, a researcher uh, at a university in Melbourne, in Australia, and I focus heavily on um, the treatment and prevention of eating disorders. But I, I focus quite a bit on those disorders characterised by binge eating, uh, so mainly bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. So I've been doing a bit of work in the area for, uh, for the past few years where I'm trying to utilise uh, technology to, 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 to find ways in which cost-effective, efficient ways in which we can get people who aren't receiving professional help some form of evidence-based care. Um, and that's what's been keeping, keeping um, me busy for the past uh, few years now, and, and I, I assume many more years into the future. But uh, it's an exciting area because I feel like uh, eating disorders is, is lagging behind a little bit uh, if, we're, if we're comparing against the more common psychiatric illnesses like depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia or psychosis. Um, so it's exciting in the sense that there's a lot of work to be done and there are a lot of holes to fill. And it's really nice to borrow from the what we know about the fields of depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and apply that to the eating disorder field. And that's what I've been uh, doing with myself. I've been trying to fill those holes um, uh, recently and, and uh, in the past to answer some important questions about how can we get people help that don't really get help and also how can we prevent these issues from escalating further. Um, so with that, um, the university job is uh, is quite boring and people usually find that, you know, sitting behind a computer analysing data, as I'm sure you're aware, and writing up manuscripts, that's to me, that's fun, but people find that incredibly boring. So <laughs> I branched out as well on the social media sphere. And I thought, because I, I was thinking um, when I was doing my research a couple of years ago, I'm like, no one's really seen this. You know, you'll get a few citations here and there. And it's like, it, that's, a, that's a marker that your work's being read and blah, blah. But it's like, no one outside of academia is kind of seeing what I'm doing. And it's kind of a bit of a waste, isn't it? Because um, in order to influence policy, you've got to have the cream of the crop research, right? You've got to be finding groundbreaking things. And as an early career scholar, you don't have the, you're not making any groundbreaking discoveries. So I thought, well, maybe it's time to get on social media because I'm relatively young. I'm, I'm, I'm still in my twenties. And I thought, well, let's, let's, do something with social media and let's disseminate the work and it's taken off quite well um people yeah. are receptive to seeing it and it's more breaking down you know complex scientific papers into bite-sized formats so that people can understand who don't necessarily have a scientific background and that's something that i know that you do very well yourself and i think it's a great way to communicate some important things about mental health so that's the short story about where i've come from so that kind of translation from research into i guess disseminating it you saw was like okay there's something lacking here um and thought okay this is a great opportunity i'd love to quiz you on 
what, what you said about accessibility and making it accessible because it's lagging behind. Um, why is that a specific problem or, or where, where did that uh, ambition, I guess, come from? Because I know you spoke before about the number of psychologists just isn't enough or the number of mental mm. health professionals just isn't enough. Well, there was a classical paper that was published in 2010 on eating disorders and it looked at, it basically estimated, it was a meta-analysis and it estimated the the, the proportion of people who are seeking help that have an eating disorder. And it was staggering that the the figure, the the pooled prevalence was 25%. So that indicates that there are 75% of, of people who are suffering these types of problems who aren't able to access any form of professional help which is huge. And and, and this is a problem. We know it's a problem because we know that the the, the longer things go untreated, the more difficult it will be to handle later on. So we need to try to get in kind of as soon as early intervention. That's kind of key, right? And if we leave that for too long, then the likelihood of these problems persisting later down the track uh, is much higher. And and then you may ask, well, well, why is that an issue? Who cares if it keeps persisting? Well, binge eating, not just binge eating, but all the kind of features of eating disorders are incredibly distressing. They take a toll on someone's mental health. You know, it's associated with, it predicts into the future depression, anxiety, um, poor quality of life. And there's also a whole host of medical complications as well. So if we are leaving these things untreated, then we're just basically opening the door for a whole range of other problems um, that people are going to encounter. So, you know, on one hand, we recognise this problem, but on the other hand, our current healthcare system uh, isn't up to the demand of all these people needing help. We know that there are only so many professionally trained psychotherapists, psychiatrists, mental health counsellors, whatever, in the world, that, that, that portion of professionals is nowhere near enough to treat the vast number of people who are dealing with these problems, let alone depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, personality disorders. So what I'm thinking is that we need to find other ways in, other avenues towards help. And I think um, I'm a big advocate that technology can play a pretty crucial role here in the sense that it can offer some form of low-intensity care for people who may otherwise never get anything. So if we're able to help someone with a smartphone app, a web-based program that would never seek any professional help because of various reasons, they can't afford it. They don't live anywhere near a, a, a trained therapist. They're ashamed stigma of, of help seeking. If we can help those people, then I think it's a win and we can then gradually close that treatment gap that is so vast at the moment. And that's where I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking, oh, I come into this. Well, I'm feeling a tiny piece of that puzzle amongst, um, you know, a, a broad range of professional uh, researchers, clinicians, psychiatrists, everyone. So I think we're all trying to have that shared goal of eliminating that big discrepancy between sufferers and the need for treatment. Yeah. And I know you have loads of things in the pipeline and loads of things that you're doing right now in terms of even training health professionals and, you know, um, all the app-based programs. I know you've run trials on that. Um, so it'd be cool to hear about the trials that you have run on your kind of tech side of things and, and your own online program, as well as the kind of other treatments for binge eating specifically, because it's a question I get so often is like, mm is there a right treatment or a correct way to go? So I'd love to hear about, you know, what are the, the evidence-based pathways, I guess, for, for treatments? It's a good question. Um, and the question of what is the right treatment, unfortunately, there's not an answer to that, right? It will all depend on uh, the individual. So there's a bit of a disconnect between the, the, the research field, and I'm guilty of this myself, versus the, the clinical field, right, where uh, researchers go, you know, we must stick to the manualized protocol that's been tested in rigorous randomized controlled trials. And there's the clinicians going, well, you don't quite understand the patients that we're dealing with. There is, 
complex comorbidities going on and all these things and treatment changes and all this. So there's a bit of a disconnect. I'm learning over time that I, I need to be less rigid in my you know, what's been rigorously tested in RCT designs, I'm slowly learning that that maybe we need to kind of have a bit of a broader perspective in the real world because that's not usually how things work out. Um, so that's my answer is we don't know. And usually if you would have asked me this a year ago, I would have said CBT. That's the number one. Make sure you do that. So we have very strong evidence that CBT um, is, is it's currently considered our first line treatment or our treatment of choice for um, eating disorders, mainly the ones of binge eating. For anorexia nervosa, it, it's not considered the treatment of choice. Uh, and I'll, I can get into that. But for the, the binge eating type disorders, CBT is usually our first point of call. If we're going to deliver something, the recommendation is that we should start off with CBT. That's because there have been numerous different research studies testing the treatments that underpin CBT or the, the manualized protocol. Um, the model that is based on CBT has been rigorously evaluated in, in, in numerous like prospective studies, experimental research, uh, different types of designs. It's, it's been shown like the underlying theory that forms the basis of treatment um, has a good, good evidence base. Uh, and, and interestingly, there was a really nice paper published a few years ago that documented the pathway from the, the conceptualization of a model to then the implementation in the real world. And it looked at all these different models that have been created. There, there have been like hundreds of different theories or models of disordered eating and eating disorders. And CBT is one of maybe three, I think, that have progressed across all stages. So model evaluation, uh, testing in, in like cross-sectional and prospective designs, pilot studies, feasibility studies, RCTs, and then effectiveness real-world studies. So we have a really strong evidence base for CBT. Um, and then we also have other therapies that, that have got a bit of empirical support too, and, and they are interpersonal psychotherapy. So that really tries to enhance the quality of social relationships among people with binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa, because the theory goes that these people's inability to maintain adequate social relationships is a, is a uh, trigger for their binge eating. So these interpersonal conflict, grief, all that kind of interpersonal stuff indirectly triggers binge eating via these other complex pathways. So the idea is if we can enhance interpersonal relationships, then we can effectively um, uh, soften the blow of those other things that are causing the binge eating. Um, other, other empirically supported treatments include dialectical behaviour therapy. So that's when it really works on that emotion dysregulation, really tries to enhance um, uh, adaptive coping strategies because we know that binge eating and purging behaviours oftentimes are a result of people unable to tolerate or, or, or manage their emotional states. Um, so those three are, are typically the, the more standout therapies that we usually see for the binge eating type disorders and there are some that are growing in evidence base so things like compassion focused therapy there have been a few uh, pilot rcts show really promising results uh, those mindfulness-based cognitive therapies so all i'm trying to say is that we have a suite of potentially good therapeutic approaches the only issue we have we have two main issues one is that there's a substantial proportion of people who don't recover from these treatments so a couple of years ago I published a meta-analysis where I looked at I calculated the weighted percentage of people who recover from eating disorder treatment and um, and it was found that for binge eating disorder 50% recover which means 50% don't recover and for bulimia nervosa the picture is a little bit worse only 35% recover so uh, that leaves us with 65% not recovering so the next question will then be, well, well, who is who are these people that are responding? Who are the types of people? And again, I tried to address this question in, in a prior um, uh, systematic review. I tried to look at, do we have any consistent predictors of outcome or moderators of outcome? So th those are those characteristics within a person that will determine or 
indicate a high probability that someone will succeed or won't succeed in treatment. And basically my conclusion was, we don't know yet. We've got no consistency in the literature. We, you know, some studies, for instance, have found um, self-esteem as a good prognostic indicator of outcome. So people with really low self-esteem basically think that they're a worthless person. Those are the people in some studies that have shown to do really, really poorly in treatment. Whereas in other studies, that hasn't been shown. So it's like the question is, well, well where are we? Um, so it's a complicated question that we still don't know the answer to, but I will say that we've made enormous progress in the past, let's say 20 years or so in developing these types of treatments. And we know we've got a good evidence base that they're working. But now the next question is, which I'm also trying to focus quite a bit on in, in my own work is trying to pinpoint who are the types of people that respond versus who are the types of people that don't respond? Because that would have enormous implications for treatment matching and the tailoring of treatments, yeah. uh, how a psychologist would tailor their treatment approach. It's one of the questions that I did want to, to ask you about, and, and you've pretty much answered it there. But in an ideal world, right, we would be able to screen people and see which treatment they would be most likely to kind of uh, get something from, I guess. I, I really wonder what, because I think I've, I've gone through the same process as you maybe in terms of I would have read certain research papers or, um, you know, seen certain results and thought, okay, that's the standout treatment and that is what we should do for everyone. Not necessarily for everyone, but that would be, that would have been my initial thought. And then working with, for example, psychologists um, in my team and, you know, other, other colleagues have seen along the way that they would have some kind of, um, I guess differing views on that specifically psychotherapies that have that haven't been tested with binge eating but have been tested in other domains like depression mm -hmm. anxiety like mood dysregulation let's say and is there potential for those or is it it's hard to call them evidence-based if they haven't been tested with for example binge mm -hmm. eating specifically but is there potential for those things because they might address mood dysregulation and if that's mm -hmm. one of the core features um, I'll, I'll ask this question to you. Are we specifically talking about psychoanalytic therapy? Is that the... Because um, well, you're a proponent of that, right? Um, I, right? So I, I work with someone who does psychodynamic. Um, psychodynamic, and, yeah. And, and I also work with people who are uh, trained in EFT. I know a couple of people who are running EFT, emotion-focused therapy, um, yep. studies through Trinity College. And what they're trying to do is... And like CBT would be considered transdiagnostic, like it can work across different um, diagnoses. And um, they're running papers and have initial results that EFT might do the same thing. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the other things that focus on, mm. you know, different. Well, areas. well, I think there's certainly rationale for it. The first thing when we're developing a treatment is we need a theory behind it, right? We need a, we need a theory behind which will then form the treatment. And the theory, uh, what you're suggesting is we're targeting certain factors that have, that have, that have been already shown to precipitate or perpetuate binge eating problems. So let's just say emotion dysregulation, right? So there is, there is a lot of theoretical grounding for someone to say, well, if it, effectively targets these problems in other disorders, depression, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, then theoretically that should then have a flow and effect to, 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 to eating disorders and binge eating, right? And I agree. I, I would say I agree. Um, there have been some, there have been studies on these types of uh, uh, treatments, for instance, psychoanalytic therapy. In 2014, there was this um, uh, good, uh, high-quality RCT that compared psychoanalytic therapy to cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, it was a direct head-to-head -head -head comparison and very rare to get those types of study designs in, 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 in um, uh, psychotherapy research because it's so expensive to run two different types of treatments. Um, and it was really interesting. So they compared psychoanalytic therapy to CBT. And what they found was in six months, psychoanalysis, and this is for bulimia nervosa, psychoanalysis only resulted in a 14% uh, recovery rate at six months. I think it was six month follow-up. 
um, whereas CBT, I think, resulted in 40% recovery rate. But what was most interesting, when we looked at the long-term follow-up, I think it was maybe two to three years, psychoanalysis actually caught up to CBT. So whereas CBT had a really rapid um, onset, like it, it, it resulted in very quick reductions in eating disorder symptoms. What happened was it kind of stabilized over time and people didn't really get better. They just maintained their gains. Whereas for psychoanalysis, what happened was they started off really, really slow, but over time they got to a point that was indistinguishable from CBT. And that was a two right. years follow-up. So that was a classical study. And that that was a very important research. If anyone's interested in this area, that is a very important design to go off because it directly compares to what they call bona fide treatments, to established treatments, to see their kind of and and and, and what happens if we see differential efficacy, one's better than the other, it gives clear indication for the mechanisms of action for a particular treatment. It it, it goes against that common factors model of you know, it's, it's all the therapeutic alliance. It's all the empathy, being in the room, the nurturing. It goes against that and it says, no, it's the specific ingredients of the therapy that is resulting in this change. So we've got evidence for that. But what was striking, like I said, was the catch-up of psychoanalysis over time. So it, depending on how you look at that, it's like you can look at this in one or two ways. One is that that's cool because it means that we have another evidence-based treatment at our disposal. We've got something else to work with. Or two, it would be like, well, do people really want to wait that long to get better? So it's two years down the track. Why don't you just go to CBT and get better in six months? Obviously, I'm speaking very loosely here. It's not as easy as just getting better. But why don't you just go to CBT, get better in, in six months or show improvements, and then you'll keep those improvements later down the track? Again, not complicated. What the next step is and what they should have done, the authors, I don't know why they haven't, in follow-up papers is do supplementary analyses looking at moderators of response so who are the types of people that respond to psychoanalysis is it for instance people who have had a childhood traumatic experience because psychoanalysis i don't know much about psychoanalysis fy but um maybe that really gets into that and tries to address that Whereas CBT might really work well for someone who um, have these dysfunctional beliefs about body weight and shape because it directly tries to tackle it head on. So my point is there should have been a follow-up to investigate who are the types of people responding to each so that you, for instance, the psychologist, can read that and say you'll get a new client and you'll say, right, this person has had childhood traumatic experience based on our research, um, this person may respond better to psychoanalysis. Therefore, I may deliver them psychoanalysis. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like, in an, again, in an ideal world, we would know the types of people who would respond best to certain treatments, and certain treatments do get at certain things differently, right? Yeah. Like, C, I guess, traditional CBT or second wave CBT is isn't exactly you know trauma focused or uh, that kind of thing obviously there are trauma focused versions of, of cbt but i had someone on the podcast um a while back talking specifically about cbt and mentioned that you know traditionally that wouldn't be seen as you know going back into childhood and, and all of that jazz so mm. um yeah i think it's really interesting that uh, again we're, we're maybe not quite there yet but being able to screen at baseline and understand who would respond best to what would, is an ideal world in the absence of that i guess it's following our best known treatments right now and mm -hmm. if necessary then reverting to other treatments if, if they aren't responsive to those ones i guess or if if they can even access those mm -hmm. as, as a follow-on from that you mentioned kind of the trauma side of things or a specific childhood um childhood adversity do we know where these difficulties kind of come from because i am kind of interested in how I guess our whole lifespan impact how we are today. Mm. One of the things that's come up in my own research is this um, theme of people being exposed to weight loss or putting a value on, on their weight or size as a, as a child. I'm wondering what we know or, or if there's much that we know about the kind of how some of those experiences shape us or what are the predictors that maybe contribute to something like binge eating. It's the it's the million dollar question, right? Because if we know that, then then 
it would be very quote unquote easy to to prevent the onset of of binge eating. So we do have a fair idea of, of a lot of the things that put people at risk for binge eating or an eating disorder. Um, and the, the ones that we typically hear, are, you know, your extreme body image concerns, your um, elevated levels of dieting or, or dietary restraint, but, but more so in a, in a rigid and, and inflexible manner um, and, and the difficulties in tolerating mood states. They're the three core risk and maintaining factors that we, we typically talk about and have the most, by far, the most evidence base or, or support but there are there are numerous potential risk factors for for binge eating problems um, that have been documented so things like um, uh, it's similar to body image but internalization of the appearance ideals so buying into beliefs that that certain people if you achieve a certain look that you'll be happy you'll be successful you know, you'll have all these beautiful things in life, um, things like impulsivity. So that's kind of a more of a, of a temperament or a trait that people kind of develop earlier on in life that we know that that is a big predictor of binge eating disorder. Not so much from my knowledge, bulimia nervosa, more so binge eating disorder. Um, but there's a bit of, and I know you're interested in, in the link between um, like childhood trauma and, and sexual abuse or, or bullying, those types of things. And there's there's been quite a bit of research done on that. And, and it's, it's, there's a pre, pretty consistent finding, I think, a, a recent systematic review and meta-analysis published, I think in 2018 or 2017, that quantified the extent of the association between childhood abuse and later eating disorders. And, and from memory, um, I may need to follow up on this, but from memory, they did find a moderate, modest effect um, over time, indicating that childhood abuse or, or traumatic experience was a predictor of the onset of later binge eating problems. And then the question is, well, well why? Why does this happen? Um, and, and there are a couple of reasons as to why this has happened. One is it falls under the classical affect regulation theory where these traumatic experiences are, are extremely difficult to handle so um, a lot of the time people will do all they can to essentially block out those experiences from resurfacing so one way to help block out these experiences is through the practice of of binge eating and purging behaviors because that's a just that just provides that temporary relief from the experience from resurfering and if you're able to stifle that belief then the person will feel a bit of uh, like they're relaxed now because they got rid of it even though that they've done a damaging behavior of binge eating and purging and one interesting theory about um uh, abuse and and later disordered eating is the, the need for control so people who have experienced the childhood abuse they don't have control of that experience that keeps getting brought up in their everyday life. It's like a PTSD experience. So um, the way people exert control is via food. That's one way in which they can do that. So they're kind of compensating for one area that they're failing, not failing in, but one area that they really have got no control over, those resurfacing of those beliefs, and they're compensating for another area which, with which they employ strict control. So very regimented eating practices, um, you know, extreme caloric restriction, things like that. So that's another interesting theory. Uh, so, so they're the usual... It's a bit beyond my personal scope of expertise. I haven't done any research on childhood, anything in childhood and later um, eating disorders. But I do know that, that there's quite a robust link going on there. Um, so it, that suggests the implications are that in treatment, if this is applicable to someone, then it suggests that we should be working on better dealing with those experiences rather than stifling them with these eating disorder behaviors which i'm sure you yourself work on <laughs> yeah it's, it's definitely an area of, of interest because it is pretty common and one of the one of the links we see it in actually is and, and something i wanted to pick your brains on is um weight loss and how mm. those two things interact because really really prominent that people show up with binge eating behaviors and also want to lose weight um, and there also is the link there between obesity and adverse childhood experiences um, i'd love to hear your thoughts on this because again it comes up so often 
when people are pursuing weight loss, or um, I think you had a statistic recently that you posted that one third of people who show up to or, or, or who are pursuing weight loss um, are, are exhibiting binge eating behaviors. Why is that an issue? Or why, why, why do those two things not really go hand in hand? Um, I think the point of that was to just highlight that, that there's a there's a strong relationship between dieting and, and binge eating. And that's pretty established in the literature. And, and, I'll, and I'll caveat that by saying that a lot of people fall under the misconception that all dieting is bad. You can't diet because you will get an eating disorder. That's not true. Okay. So people just like to say that it's more of an attention grab you know, they're not familiar with the, the evidence base of, of dieting and, and, and binge eating. So trying to clarify that misconception is that, yes, we've got pretty good evidence going that dieting increases the risk for eating disorders. And there is evidence that the, more sev- the, the degree of severity of the dieting is usually linearly, asso- linearly associated with the severity of future eating disorders, right? There was a few studies, for instance, that showed, you know, there was one study in 19, classical study, been cited, you know, a couple thousand times, very robust study published in the BMJ, one of the best um, academic journals. They basically found their finding was uh, young people, young, I think it was women, young girls, sorry, who reported dieting at a quote unquote severe level were 18 times more likely to develop an eating disorder at a, in their adolescence or something like that. And, you know, um, uh, young, pe- young girls who were dieting at a uh, extreme level, I'm not sure what's more, what's worse, extreme or severe. I think severe is worse, but anyway, just the one category lower than severe, let's just say they were, I think eight times likely. So we've got evidence, and that's been replicated in in many different studies. But what's also interesting is that there are some studies that don't show a connection between dieting and disordered eating or eating disorders. And even more interesting is that with binge eating disorder, many people may, may not know, but there a lot of work has been gone into treating binge eating disorder with behavioral weight loss treatments. So that's caloric restriction uh, diets, lifestyle changes and things like that. Carlos Grillo, uh, uh, he's the number one um, expert uh, in binge eating disorder. He's published numerous RCTs of behavioral weight loss and binge eating disorder. And we actually see decent results. Like it's not, it's it's not too dissimilar to what we see with CBT, where there's no emphasis on targeting um, uh, dieting or dietary restraint, and uh, it begs the question: Well, well, what's going on here? Why are some people doing well going on a weight loss diet and they actually reduce their binge eating or bulimic symptoms, whereas some people um, who diet just fall off the wagon and they develop an eating disorder. So the question we're really asking there are what are the moderating variables? What are the things that are altering that relationship? And we've identified a couple of things that we think that are influencing that relationship. And one is the degree, which I mentioned, the degree of the diet or the type of diet. Um, We can, I'm sure you've heard, but we can distinguish between two very broad types of diet categories. We've got a really rigid approach and we've got a more relaxed and flexible approach. So whereas both of them are really focused on some sort of body composition or weight regulation, some sort of goal to do with body weight or shape, the the way in which people practice the diet is different. So a rigid approach is that all or none, um, I will exclude these foods from my diet because they are bad for me they're forbidden i will skip my meals i will you know fast for long periods of time blah blah the flexible approach is well i'm still going to stay at a calorie deficit but i'm going to be very relaxed in my approach i'm going to involve a whole variety of foods if i happen to eat something at quote unquote i shouldn't i wasn't allowed to then i'm not going to compensate for it next meal i'll just you know take things as they come and those two approaches actually uh, um, 
show some promise in distinguishing those who go on to develop problems versus those who don't. So the rigid approach, consistent. The consistent finding is that is the approach that is most strongly connected to eating disorders, particularly fasting type behaviors. People who go for very long periods of time without eating in order to influence their weight and their shape, that is the dietary behavior that if someone said, Jake, what would you discourage? Give me one thing to discourage. I would say that for your mental health. I don't know what weight loss benefit has. I don't know what physiological, medical benefit. I don't look into that, right? But in terms of an eating disorder, mental health, I would say avoid that approach because the evidence is pretty overwhelming in this domain of eating disorders. Um, so the rigid approach, problematic. The flexible approach, don't know yet. Like we haven't done enough research into it. We've, we've some studies have shown that it predicts actually lower levels of disordered eating because it's it's a more healthier and adaptive way to, 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 to handle people's food regulation. But some studies haven't shown that. So what I would say is that if, if someone is adamant on pursuing a weight loss diet and they're really concerned about the risk of an, of an eating disorder or binge eating type problem, I would say really make sure you steer clear from the rigid approach because that the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. It's, it's countlessly shown to, um, to, 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 to increase the onset of these types of problems. So I guess, you know, there are, there are, it's, it's hard, like working in the eating disorder space, you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever recommended a diet and I probably won't because it's, it's quite a, you know, you know what it's like, it's a sensitive topic for people and you, you don't, things can get misconstrued. So I, I think you need to, you know, you want to just keep up to date with the types of harmful diets that we know. And maybe as, as, as time goes on, we'll be able to identify those, the, those those types of people who we can safely say well there's a really low probability that you'll have issues down the track therefore you know yeah. it's safe to do so but we're not at that stage just yet um that's something that i think you're looking into with your doctoral thesis if i'm correct yeah so uh, i guess in, in my area i find this fascinating because i guess i always caveat the diet um when i, when I talk about diets i always caveat it with saying traditional dieting because traditional dieting is that way that you said is super restrictive is like mm. really black or white, et cetera, et cetera. I think there are potentially, again, like you said, we're not there yet, but I think there are potentially safer ways to do that, that don't mm. buy into some of those risk factors, like the super rigid approaches or cutting out specific things. It's really interesting when you look at like, again, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of in in between like weight loss and and binging and trying to, to marry those two things together as best I can um when you look at the people who are successful one of the predictors of that is like flexibility and psychological flexibility specifically mm -hmm. the psychologist named Colin Greaves who did a systematic review in 2017 and they found that like psych all these psychological factors that predicted change and the interesting part to me is like all of those things translate over to what would be worked on in therapy so it's like almost the therapeutic approaches, I guess, would, would potentially mitigate some of those risk factors. But again, mm -hmm. probably safer to say we're not there yet and we're not sure. So, yeah. Um, what, one of the things I did want to, to touch on was the idea of, which again is, is prevalent in weight loss, is the subclinical side of things. Mm -hmm. The people who don't quite meet the, the criteria um for like binge eating disorder but exhibit maybe some of those behaviors or some things for example like weight concern or, or body image concern mm -hmm. that might put them at risk do we have any research on specifically like those people who don't quite meet the criteria and, and what could potentially be done for those people uh, yeah, yeah we do we do but I, I will say that these people generally get neglected a little bit right so so what i mean by that is um because my domain is is treatment outcome studies evaluating different treatment or interventions and what we usually do in these studies is we have a strict criteria you ought to meet diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder in order to come and enroll in my study and try my treatment you ought to meet criteria for bulimia nervosa etc so these people who are um, a vast majority of people that are suffering 
they don't meet the criteria for these that they may, you know, binge irregularly, but they might, may not meet the threshold of once per week over the last three months, for example, um, uh, or they may have a different symptom profile to what is expected. So the DSM um, recognised this uh, prior to the publication of the number five, they recognise that a lot of people with an eating disorder were getting classed into the EDNOS category, so the eating disorder not otherwise specified. And they had a look at the, they were having a look at who are the types of, what were the symptom profiles of people getting into this category of EDNOS? And they found that basically it was, it was basically everyone with binge eating disorder or the vast majority of people that were binge eating disorder. So they tried to, they tried to mitigate that by in the DSM-5, providing the new category of binge eating disorder so whereas people were because ednos basically means the rest and it's not being it's not really nice to think of you if you're a sufferer as i fall under the rest right you don't it's it just doesn't sound right so they changed that to dsm and what happened was people were then migrated into the binge eating disorder category and we have much fewer cases of um osfed which is now called other specified feeding and eating disorders so that is what we're really talking about in terms of the, the, the sub-threshold level. And the reason why I say it's kind of the sub-threshold level, because if you look at the specific OSFED categories, we've got bulimia nervosa of low duration, of low binge duration. So it means that these people don't quite meet the um, frequency of binge eating or purging. Um, we've got bulimia nervosa of uh, binge eating disorder of low frequency and duration as well. So what we're really talking about here is the OSFED categories. And below the OSFED categories are those people who don't even meet that. They may binge once a month and then they may binge again in three or four months' time. So they've really got mild level symptoms. Um, and, and there's really been not much done on, on these types of, of individuals. Uh, we, we don't have a treatment outcome study purely of OSFED or EDNOS cases, which is really strange. A lot of the times um, they're just lumped in or included with bulimia nervosa, depending on the type of inclusion criteria. So I kind of recognise this and I thought to myself, you know what, like when I'm running my own RCTs, you know, trialling my, my digital interventions, I'm not excluding people on the basis of diagnostic category or not. So what I've been doing lately is I'm doing kind of like a free-for-all where I'm saying my inclusion criteria, if you engage in binge eating, you're in, like you are free to participate. And what's been great is that when we've, when we've analysed the data, we've found that um, our sample is so heterogeneous, heterogeneous such that we've got, you know, a pool of people with binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, OSFED. We don't typically include anorexia nervosa for, for other reasons. But um, we've got this, you know, disparate group of, of people and we find that they all respond pretty equally well to the type of intervention we've given. So the type of the diagnostic category does not moderate their responsiveness to our digital treatments. Um, and, and I think it's important to not exclude these people because there have been some really classical studies that have compared... Um, you know, mental health, the mental health or the functional impairment of sub-threshold versus diagnostic level um, eating disorders. And they've actually found that there's really few differences between the two. So it's suggesting that these sub-threshold cases, if we want to call them that, they're just as impaired psychologically as people who meet the classical diagnostic DSM criteria. So yeah. it then begs the question, well, yeah, why, why are we... I was wondering, is, is that, so what you're saying there is behaviorally, they don't meet the, the I guess, behavioral um, criteria, but psychologically or even life-wise, that, the, that they still have the same levels of, of impairment or, or difficulty. Exactly right. So we find that on, the, on other measures of psychopathology, let's just take away eating disorder psychopathology, the behaviors, they're different, right? We know that the behaviors are more severe in the threshold cases, the, not compared to the sub-threshold cases. But when we're looking at other important domains of functioning, like social functioning, uh, quality of life, uh, psychosocial impairment, all these self-esteem, we actually find that they're pretty indistinguishable from each other, which is suggesting that they're both suffering, right? Mm -hmm. They're both struggling really bad. Um, so 
it does not make sense to exclude them on that reason, which is, you know, every time I write my papers on and I include these sub-threshold cases into my sample, I always get a reviewer coming back and saying, why were you so inclusive with your sample? Like, why didn't you um, uh, limit it to people with binge eating? I'm like, no, because, you know, there's evidence showing that, they are equally impaired. So why would we not trial our digital treatments with these people? They're not different. To, to They're just, they exhibit fewer behaviours, but the, they've got the same level of impairment experience. It's really, so it's really interesting to hear that because I had someone who has, um, who had a diagnosis of anorexia on my podcast a while ago. And one of the things that they mentioned that really stood out to me was that they had recovered by you know dsm standards and by their own treatments they were doing an inpatient treatment and they were discharged but psychologically the same you know so they still had all of the thoughts all of the concerns um all of or some of the behaviors but not enough to meet the criteria and they didn't meet the weight criteria therefore they're you know quote unquote better but on, on the psychological side on the impairment side were were pretty similar and it sounds like this is is the same so it sounds like it's a you know it's it's almost sad to hear because those people probably you know well probably not probably definitely deserve the same support just because uh, and just because maybe they exhibit fewer symptoms um they they might not get access to those supports because i, I know public health systems specifically require some of the criteria right Exactly right. And, and these people are, are missing out because of a, you know, a, a, an ingrained belief we have that the, the people with the, the diagnostic level eating disorder need first preference, whereas they're only the tip of the iceberg. And I'm not at all saying that that's, they don't deserve treatment. Of course, they deserve treatment. But what I'm saying is that there needs to be a system in place that prevents exclusion of sub-threshold cases because of a misbelief that they are sub-threshold and they're not uh, as urgent, I sh- maybe is the word, as urgent as, as what it would be. But it all boils back to the issue of we have, li- we have you know, limited uh, resources uh, for our healthcare system and, 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 you know, you can only take on a certain number of patients. Um, so they're tricky issues to follow and this is why I think um, this is where prevention is key, right? If we're able to prevent these things from happening in the first place, then that is that's the goal, isn't it? Because, uh, and we can do that in the classroom at school, you know, primary school and high school with uh, curriculum, you know, body image curriculum, for instance. Um, so yeah, it's interesting stuff that we do that. So I've definitely taken the approach of in my research to, uh, to be include a variety of different symptom profiles um, because they usually respond equally the same to different types of interventions. But it, it's interesting nonetheless, and, and maybe it will change soon in the future. Yeah, I know it's something that I'm passionate about in terms of training health professionals and, and I, I run my own course, which is probably slightly different to the one that you run, but you're after launching your own health professionals course specifically for binge eating. Is that part of the thought around prevention and, and mitigating risk and I guess hitting more people? Exactly right. So that, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. So um, the point of that course was to, so like I mentioned before, we can get people better. We can help them overcome binge eating without a without a trained mental health professional. Obviously, that increases the likelihood of, of recovery, but there's good evidence showing that people get better via self-help approaches, right? Whether they read a self-help book, they implement the tips, techniques, steps in the self-help book, and they improve over time. It's no, it's not a, it's not as effective as um, face-to-face standard psychological treatment. But the idea is, what happens? What happens if we train people who are working directly with these people on the front line every day? So, who do we usually see that work with people with binge eating problems? The types of health professionals. I can name a couple. I know um, many different personal trainers, for instance, that are working with. Um, people with severe binge eating problems and they do not know how to manage it. They've got no idea what to do, Uh, understandably so, because they've never been taught that in their course, degree, whatever they got. Um, 
uh, we've also got um, uh, nutritionists and dietitians. They have more uh, expertise in dealing with these types of problems than your PTs. But I thought to myself, what happens if we can act, get, we can disseminate these types of evidence-based interventions at a broader scale? And, and I thought, what's one way that we can do this? And I thought, well, instead of giving out self-help materials to these people, because people get sick of doing it themselves, you know, I've come up with, you know, eBooks, um, apps, all these things, and people just get over it. They don't want to read through it themselves. They get sick of it. They'll give it a go and then they wane and they wax and wane and they, they lose motivation. So I thought, well, what's another way to one, enhance motivation, compliance, and get more people into get some form of appropriate care. And I thought, what about if we target health professionals? What about if we teach them the fundamentals of um, kind of psychological interventions for, for binge eating problems? So I thought, well, uh, let's see how we go. So the, the course that was created was designed to do that. It's, it's purely pitched at health professionals that helps them better screen via assessment tools um, uh, understand and manage their clients with binge eating problems because a lot of these times these people these professionals they, they got no idea they don't know whether they're fueling the fire or they're doing something good they're also, just wing it, it, it. And, and it comes up a lot that they they feel under pressure to do thing to do everything it's like oh my client has x y and z going on how can i fix them or how can i support mm. them and I think they, they put themselves under a lot of pressure to, to do that. And I think in the absence of being trained or the absence of doing a, a specific course or getting some sort of CPD, um, it can be quite overwhelming as it, as it must be. Like you said, it's not part of their course. So when, when you see, you know, clinicians or, or health professionals out there who don't have the, the qualifications, maybe like, obviously I, I feel for them, but it's, it's, I guess as part of the course, maybe it'd be interesting to hear what types of, of things they might learn about or, or what some of the, the approaches might be that, that are helpful at that level. Exactly. So it was we, we just launched it relatively recently and it's been, we've had good feedback so far. So the idea is to, to for those people with very rudimentary to knowledge of, of psychological principles, what it is that you could do to kind of help your clients that are exhibiting these types of problems. So help them in the moment. So basically it's, it's those foundational psychological principles that can be applied to, um, uh, to, to their client population. And there's a lot of, you know, it just didn't come out of the blue. There's a lot of research showing that if that, that you can train various types of professionals to implement these kind of self-help tools and it's, it's actually there's there's a, there's a there's a growing evidence base supporting their use so i thought that might be a way to close the treatment gap so you know if you treat for instance uh, if you train 50 professionals those 50 one professional just say has 10 clients that have type that are at risk that's what is that 50 times 10 is that 500 i don't even know <laughs> so let's just go with that that's 500 people who are getting help that getting some appropriate support backed by evidence then if they wouldn't have so that was the idea behind it um and yes i'm interested to see you know where where it goes and and whether they implement it with with their their clients um yeah, that's yeah that's the gist behind it yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I, I think it, people are screaming out for it. Health professionals are screaming out for it. They really want it because as much as any other psychological issue like that, that probably presents, binge eating is one that is specifically around food um, and, mm. and size. And obviously the kind of the group of people who go to personal trainers will maybe try and manipulate some of those things. And, and I guess they, they do go hand in hand. So I'm, I'm really glad like I, I signed up for, for people who are listening. I signed up as well because, you know, what better place to learn about all of the latest research and, and all of the evidence ways, uh, evidence-based ways to, to address some of those things. Um, I wanted to finish, Jay, because I'm aware we're, we're coming up to time. I wanted to finish with something kind of practical for people because so far, <laughs> I hope this has been, I'm sure it, it will be helpful for people, but it's equally helpful for me. This, this is a list of, of questions that I came up with because I'm interested in them as much as anyone else. But I wanted people to leave with something practical. Like you said, there are 
101 reasons why people don't get support or struggle to get support, can't access support for a host of different reasons. Um, in terms of kind of advice, general advice, I'm sure you probably give this out all the time and, and you know speak about it all the time. For the people who can't access support, what kind of things can people do today for themselves that are maybe the straightforward ways or, or the kind of simple, simpler ways to kind of self-help? I think the internet is by far your best friend. So there are numerous um, uh, uh, reputable content out there for people struggling, not just with eating disorders, but with depression, anxiety. So finding those those um, self-help materials online and trying to implement them as a first step in your journey towards recovery or remission, whatever you want to call it. I think that is my biggest recommendation because there are things out there. They're freely available. For instance, um, you know, just go on Instagram and find literally find people with that are credible, right? Like head first <laughs> and hopefully break binge eating. Um, find credible sources of content. So you want to avoid those gimmick kind of things, right? So um, because there is free information out there, you don't need to spend money on, on self-help material. Or if you do, it will be not much money at all. And try as a first step to implement the, the strategies that are, not prescribed, but are kind of presented by these types of people who have devoted their life towards studying and, and understanding these mental health problems. So um, I would really recommend saying that the internet is your best friend and use that as your first point of call. So oftentimes we actually see that people find self-help enough. So when they go and they go download, let's just say a, an ebook or a anything that kind of helps them through something, they actually, not a lot of the time, but some of the time they find that that was sufficient and it helped reduce their symptoms. It helped manage cope with situations better, um, helped to manage their eating patterns or their body image to a level that was bearable and not interfering with their day-to-day -day functioning. And because of that, they then need not go out and spend money on a psychiatrist who is upwards of 300 US dollars, I mean, Australian dollars a, a session, sorry. So they've actually, by doing their research online and finding this material, they could have potentially saved themselves, you know, thousands of dollars of therapy sessions. I'm not saying that you should not seek therapy because your prime example, you're a psychologist and, you know, you are wanting to treat patients. So what, what I'm, I'm saying is that there are multiple avenues. If you feel like you cannot go see a psychotherapist for any reason, there are other ways forward. But if you feel like I need someone to talk to, I need that empathic concern, that therapeutic alliance, then go to that first, right? You, you, you know who you are the best and you know what you will respond to the best. But to summarise, there are multiple options available. You yourself need to do deep reflection as to what it is you think you will respond best to. Yeah, I think you you said it perfectly earlier. Like it's it's not a direct uh, re re replication of what one to one is or face to face is. But if you struggle to access some of those supports, there are things out there. And Jake, maybe you're too modest to say for yourself, but I would massively recommend your website, um, breakbingeating.com, Right. It has so many resources out there between recommendations for books, podcasts, self-help materials, all of those different things. Um, I think that this podcast has been really informative, not just for the people listening, but for me too. Um, it'd be cool to wrap up with maybe where to find you and what you're doing at the moment. Um, and, and yeah, if, if people want any access to your resources, where they can go. Cool. Um, yes. Yeah, so where my first like, point of contact is the, I, I'm most active on Instagram, um, which is at break binge eating uh, and, and the website, like you mentioned, Joe, where it's just basically a whole bunch of resources for people, basically for anyone, anyone who is struggling with these types of things, people like yourself who um, are health professionals who are, you know, interested in, in information about uh, binge eating, 
and then those types of issues. Um, so I'm most active on there. Feel free to to give us a follow. And that reminds me, Joe. I think you've, you you'll have to make the list on the the top podcasts for the <laughs> website now. So I'll, I'll um, that will be changed soon. So I'll let you know. Um, and if it, like we were speaking about before, if anyone's interested, we launched a new um, health professionals course. If anyone is more than um, interested in signing up, um, maybe I can give you the details, Joe. And if you want it, whenever you're putting this podcast on your page, whatever. But um, that's for training people up to, to better deal with these types of problems there. But I, I do appreciate you having me on. I know it's early morning. I'm sorry if you had to put the alarm on a little bit earlier than usual, but I think it's been a great conversation. Yeah, look, I think it's definitely worth it to get up a few minutes early um, to get someone like yourself on, one of the leading researchers in eating disorders. Um, and that's not even an exaggeration, like literally one of the leading researchers in <laughs> eating disorders. So, um, yeah, Jake, look, I appreciate your time. I know that that's going to be really valuable for people. And, and thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it.